In this essay, I will propose that space is a literal commodity we all sell, buy, barter, and trade. When looking at the technical salesman or a traditional salesman making an offer, money flows through the connective synthesis of space and signifying chains of the real. The lack of money brings no space to the disjunctive synthesis, thus separating the real from the recording process. Social salesmen bring space back into the disjunctive synthesis via the insult, but the recording happens at the limit. Without a proper signifier, it is insufficient to cause flows of the real by insulting. The transaction of money simply follows signifying chains that have preformed conditions already placed a priori. My argument entails that the essence of lack, represented by capitalism by separating from the real, the disjunctive synthesis, it forces comparative prices of capitalism to fall back on the disjunctive synthesis of the real. Here, Alain Beaulieu's read on Deleuze derives the vital potentia being stolen or taken. As Deleuze puts it in Anti-Oedipus, desire knows nothing of exchange. It only knows theft and gift. It is at the limit that the social salesman makes an offer of deterritorialized space. By maneuvering space, Social salesmen are able to position their subjects to where they disappear or vanish. The language of production is the language of exchange and it determines what or what doesn't deserve to be represented as real or real in itself. This is why insults work under the double bind, binding the subjects into a position of differentiation at one level and keeping him trapped in the real in a series of signifying chains at the other. The consequence of this is a thoughtful retaliation we all experience, but with himself or himself doing it to himself. The insult never ends once the encounter is over with, but instead continues long after it is over. The, this effect of taking it home is precisely the property of space. The social salesman, just like any technical salesman, offers a gift that is meant to return. This gift, depending on the space, will travel alongside of it and will return either overcoated or it will fall back onto the hands of the receiver and exhaust itself. Thus, one of the challenges of social salesmen in capitalistic space is to avoid the receiver to turn into a masochist. Once the insulted becomes a masochist, the insult becomes void and the sadist suffers from his own gregariousness. Capitalism eases the exchange of codes moving through space comparatively, making an overcode exchange much more difficult. Deleuze does not criticize capitalism, but he says it does not go far enough. An insult is the purest form of offer there is. Again, in Alain Beaulieu's book, Gilles Deleuze Politics, he asserts that we clearly recognize the defense of individualist values, which appear simultaneously in capitalism's praise of personal affairs. This is why we cannot speak of the repression of desire by one of these elements without also mentioning the crushing of desire by the other. Many people link the transactional image of money exchange to the way social salesman makes an offer. But they are different because of the way the interpret and 
they interpret and represent space. When we insult someone, we are making an offer, but through de but through territorialized space where the real has vanished for the aggressor. Why then would we buy things with money so we can prove ourselves superior and withstand the judgment of others? If it weren't for space demanding sacrifice to our vital potentia, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari's statement, the feeling of shame is one of the most in powerful incentives towards philosophy, and it's what makes all philosophy political, is the motivation behind the social salesman. This age is starting to collapse on itself, but not in the way most people think about when they hear or think about the word collapse, or restart, like in restart the economy. This idea that a currency, like money, holds control over our lives places power to the holder of money. But everybody already knew that. The f in fact, it is such common knowledge, such intuitive knowledge, that it sits at the front and center of our unconscious awareness to the point that it has already pivoted into gospel. The assertion remains unchallenged, but with such a price tag put on it. And the price tag is thought. Just ask anyone, what makes money so valuable? And they will eventually say that money is simply a piece of paper to which we as a society put value. The answer is way too cranial, way too thoughtful. It's inaccessible to the general public. It requires us to force out an interpretation with various sources and citations. This is why we will critique the Freudian Marxist interpretation of the libidinal economy, where the understanding was that drives were about returning back to the comfort and embrace of the nurturing mother, and the competent figure of the father is what drives the market into this direction. We will abandon this because it always represents the real. My wife is like the mother or I will emulate my father, for example. The phrase sell or be sold and we are all businesses is truer than ever before. And that we sell ourselves at every measure of existence is a very prevalent thought in our minds. Don't confuse what I, when I mean when I assert that selling of space, it is not in terms of real estate. It is also not figuratively, i.e. it takes on the properties of space, or space is just a construct or projection of the mental mind. This is not what we mean. First, I will have to establish the relationship of gregariousness to the adult, or what it means to become an adult. Gregariousness will give us a visual reference to the limit. A limit is where space ends and a concept begins. What I'm talking about when I say a limit, well, it's the area where we're most removed from the centrifugal force underneath. Is this too vague enough? Well, gregariousness entails what? Most associated it with the definition of having the attributes of being pleasant to be around. But there also lies the stern, righteous, self-stiff-neckedness already adopted by the adult, 
When we are told to grow up, what does it mean? What advice do we usually hear when we are caught in gregarious groups of adults? They are to avoid trivial and menial arguments, to measure oneself and put restraints. Do not get caught up with emotions, they would say. Avoid pleasure to its fullest extent. Be modest and moderate. Be strong and preserve to the end. The point I'm trying to make is that gregariousness will reach a point of self-criticism. It takes on the Nietzschean philosophical identity of the ascetic priest. It is capitalism that has disbanded the cultural cohesion of gregarious adults. It frees up codes and re-territorializes space to where it becomes difficult to appropriate space for codes to miraculate. In other words, capitalism demands insults to be less obvious. In even plainer terms, capitalism demands the same creative and cruel ways of resentment to torture enemies. This is why we typically disqualify the instigator, or the one who insinuates a fight or argument, and claim them to be resentful and just an old species of human being. This time, the cruel and torturous devices are space. The mere fact that we're able to experience this loss of cohesion in our culture means that we've already hit this marker in history. The reason why psychologists like Dr. Jordan Peterson say that in order to become an adult, one must take on responsibility for responsibility's sake is that we have reached this point of history and Dr. Jordan Peterson is the embodiment of the gregarious adult. To adopt responsibility for responsibility's sake is precisely preaching the ascetic ideal. Deleuze and Guattari talks of a plane or a surface known as a celibate machine. It is typically thought of the surface at the highest point from the th three-layer paranoiac hierarchy, although it is not a hierarchy. First is the paranoia machine where repulsive forces and attractive forces contend with the body without organs but never end up resolving entirely. Then the miraculating machine, taken from the root word miracle, is a plane formed on top but immediately appropriated by the paranoiac. As the name miracle implies, it can only do with the paranoiac machine supplying its surplus from the contending forces left over. It is entirely Im an imminent process, which means that its functions and formations are one and the same. The celibate machine is more or less what we experience as leftover surplus. We mean the identity we experience as a subject, the quote-unquote I feel, derived from the molecular all the way up to the original surface, the body skin, is the formation of the real produced by desiring machine. This is the flow of the capital R real. The celibate machine is entirely detached and stands on its own which would provide the necessary disassociations or breaks from the disjunctive synthesis, moving the real out of perceptible experiences, which could entail why the breaks or the lack of money would feel as the 
essence of lack moving from out of us. This is why for us, selling and exchanging or transacting is the only real experience that would be considered as successful as a subject or us operating the capitalist machines for our gains. The miraculating machine takes on the monetary property of compounding interest rates. The marker of history I'm referring to is that when time begins to implode on itself, it overcodes as it falls through the cracks. But this is way too encrypted. A better way to understand this is that ideas are beginning to implode on itself. This assertion was made by philosopher and theorist Martin Heidegger in his book The Thing, where thought itself remains concealed in such a way that it unconceals. But this unconcealment only happens with it being in relation to being and not being itself. For our purposes, we will begin by exploring bias, anticipation, concealment, prejudice, and all of these terms. But what we are looking for are the ingredients for condescension. Condescension as a literary device will serve us here because we will explore the unregulated market of the vital potentia with the quote-unquote public freakout phenomenon. This is anonymous, anonymous or stranger in-person insults out in the public. Condescension as a literary device. Many philosophers work with irony or sarcasm to add to their philosophy. So to give you a rough timeline, we will explore a space with public freakouts, familial or alliance conflict, outrage culture, and workplace reprimands, respectively. For this video, we will only focus on public freakouts. Condescension as a literary device works in three phases or steps. One, parody. Two, allow allowance. Three, unconcealment. The first is parody. A child rebels against his parents only to grow up and become a parent himself. This is a great example because not only do we get the idea of anticipation, but also we return to this idea of gregariousness. This is also great because anticipation can work both ways. The parent can anticipate the child growing up to experience the exact same thing the parent is experiencing right now, even if it does take 25 or so years to wait. But the child can also anticipate the anticipation. Notice that we are adding levels or degrees to the chain that goes on indefinitely. And this is the kind of thing Deleuze disliked from Hegelian dialectics because we never really get out of this fold. But the greatness of reading Deleuze is that he can do it in a way that's not transcending anything nor mystifying anything either. Number two, allowance. Allowance does this beautifully. Allowance is in terms of permission. Allowance is forecasting. Allowance is gifting and returning. It works off of foreknowledge, which is why we've touched a little bit on Martin Heidegger on how ideas are difficult to be original and emerge. 
This is because thought coming from allowance is never original, but, as he put it, is already happening put prior by philosophers in the past. As we say, thought imploded already. A parent allows a child to rebel. We know that every child at some point rebels against their parents. How can this inform us into taking action, and not in the good way? It is by gifting a gift meant to return. So by allowing a child to rebel gives us an impression that the parent allocated time and space for him to rebel under. It is not truthful rebellion, but it is a representation of something like rebellion. An artificial situation created to emulate or simulate a rebellion. A better example would be the college town or the college lifestyle wrapped up in the era known as the college phase. Think about the college demonstrations we typically see on TV. The revolution's cause does not come from an injustice, but rather under the spirit of, I'm growing to be an adult. Here we must ask, what is the adult giving to the college student when, say, a parent sends his kid off to college? Because remember, it must return. Is the student under the illusion that he's off on his own? Would the socialist policies that the students demand the city take in resemble a truthful reflection of his own growth? Well, is he taking responsibility, or better yet, is he taking gregariousness to be the responsibility of all the sacrifices to be a better adult? I would argue he is under no illusion. The element of surprise is anticipated by the adult who conceals reality under a representational form. He says, you just wait until you graduate, or just wait until you get to the real world. A better way to transition into the concealment is to examine taxes as the reflection of the real, the gregarious adults represent as sacrifice. Because what is the adult giving to the student? He is giving tax dollars. The element of surprise, which is the injection of territorialized space into capitalism, is because taxes are apparatuses of recording, demarcating, bookmarking, and inscription. What does come to mind is the adult's inability to forget, or as Nietzsche would put it, the great health has left the gregarious adult. Don't forget, you're here because of me, he would say to the student. I'm doing the real work. I'm in the real world, world etc., etc. Which brings us to the final stage, the unconcealment stage. This is where the gift returns while the package remains with the receiver. We already alluded this when we talked about thoughtful retaliation, where the subject is pinned under two surfaces one of which he must voluntarily give and the other of which involuntarily give out, thus splitting him from differentiated state states to physical and present states. From what we touched earlier, taxpayers following the connective synthesis of recording, the, the gatekeepers of reproductions are taxpayers. The human vital potentia is literally flowing the flowing of life. It's simply represented as money or alongside of money. 
We might say that this caused the worry of being born as unfortunate, which is a primary worry of many young adults today. This argument is poorly articulated by the gregarious adult. He typically says or gives advice like, you must accept your lot in life and simply move on, forgive and forget. He asserts that the more one is born under unfortunate circumstances, the more he warrants the insult. The college is, that is funded by tax dollars has its students rebel not in the fashion that the adults allowed them to, but because the allowing remains unchallenged. I am not arguing that the gregarious adults forecasts and engineers the conditions for a demonstration to occur at colleges or liberal cities, even, but something even more notorious than that. It is to have unconcealment presented to the adult as a return on investment. The vicious, vile, and dare I say it, resentful cycle is left to miraculate indefinitely. A revolt against life itself serves as this marker in history. It is the gift of giving the students a lesson, but the lesson deterritorializes the ground worn by him within flows of growth. Or in other words, the lesson needed for the youth to grow into the adult. Thus, we will refer to the adult as growing adults. The hyphenated, the hyphenated word growing and adults. The, the quote-unquote phase is itself a dialectical insult meant to position a winner or loser as already predestined in advance, but not in the binary sense most people are used to. The virtual field has already positioned the players immediately as the actual field oscillates back and forth from the paranoiac investment to the limit where the celibate machines exist. The anticipation of anticipation and continuing on to anticipation and anticipation and so on and so forth marks the start of time overcoding itself, resulting in human, the human vital potentia falling through the cracks and thereby having an indebtedness to it. This would explain the feeling of thoughtful retaliation experienced by being insulted. But it already has this, the three steps of the insult, the parody, allowance, and unconcealment, as affirmed within the insult. The insult is an empty package that displaces itself in the celibate machine, creating an optical illusion known as the axiomatic, where space itself displaces, meaning that the subject comes to it rather than the subject walks or goes the distance to it. This is what gives insults the awkward property of negative momentum. Altercations escalates despite, despite being halted in a sudden stop. Which is why we will take a phenomenological approach to the offer. Offers that are given by salesmen and the notion that we are all salesmen has come from the fact that space itself is the commodity that is sold, bartered, and traded. With Nietzsche, we can move the discussion away from pleasure presented to us by the Freudian Marxist libido and into suffering. Insults requires a thorough understanding of enjoyment versus desire because it hinges itself in comparative prices like, like the comparative markets. The kind of desire, the kind of revenge when we are 
imagining in our heads the suffering as a consequence from the insult is called the inception. This type of insult splits the person into two. One, the memory of the phantasm image of the receiver in the mind of the aggressor. The other is the present subject or the physical body. What makes this incredible is that space can help the aggressor push or pull the vital potentia towards him. This happens twice. Let's assume he won. Once from the altercation itself and the other perpetually in his head. We are immediately reminded of Nietzsche's slave morality, where resentment within the slave, slave class betrayed will to power to the will to nothingness. Why this compares to capitalism is how capitalism inside its own signifying chains compounds on itself exponentially. We must have the dialectical push-pull forces from the paranoia surplus. If the gregarious adult insulted a growing adult, then the growing adult is placed under a better position than previously under. Because th this is because both are participating in flows of growth. For example, youth are taught to toughen up by falling flat on their faces. In order to grow, then, one must be humble by this logic. This parody puts in question of who's, who really won an altercation depending on what remains with the receiver and what returns to the aggressor. However, it does not explain why altercations escalate into a climax. The gregarious adult can justify his actions by the very fields of growth he operates under. Saying that the insult is warranted because it's for the best is a bit condescending. However, one quickly realizes that the desire to attain revenge is not so upfront. The miraculating machine miraculates with the surplus codes formed from under the flows of growth, the miraculating capital. This is flows of production where labor and value are equal in the, co in the codes that are or could be transferred from smooth spaces, deterritorialized or striated spaces, territorialized by the nomad. Now we're beginning to understand how insults are tied to codes and space, but to understand how it's sold requires a bit of geometry. Deleuze puts it this way, anti-production. The Deleuzeo picture of capitalism moves the discussion away from a backwards bulwark of markets, meaning prices retroactively compare itself to itself. Instead, Deleuze provides a forward-moving, anti-representational momentum. Previously, the Christian envy that says we desire the material possessions or statuses of others because we lack it is precisely this comparative market. The markets can help us alleviate psychic repression, not by acquiring the desired object, but by confusing the positionality of where we stand in the axiomatic for the position which encodes on the surface appropriated by comparative codes. Wow, what a mouthful. This simply means we can never reach the fulfillment or enjoyment, much less solve it. Marshall McLuhan asserted that the raw data emitted from television could only be enjoyed at a distance. The photons ray emitted all convexes on, onto the screen. The phosphorus pixels light up individually but vanishes at a distance from the viewer. 
This is the optical illusion of movement and color by watching television. What Marshall McLuhan emphasized, and Deleuze and Guattari later added, was that the locus was never inside the television, but it externalized precisely where the viewer could enjoy the television. The locus falls upon us, in capturing us in the axiomatic. We vanish because we stand below the optical illusion. We are an optical illusion. This means we vanish in relation to the axiomatic once captured by the apparatus. Who are our viewers? Well, even if we obtain what we want, we will continue to vanish. But we must remain functional for the surface to siphon in the life force. Or in other words, for an environment to keep us the sacrificial um, lamb that we are. The vital potentia keep siphoning in to the system. Deleuze and Guattari says that the social machines work precisely because they constantly break down, as opposed to technical machines that operate because they work. We confuse the intensity of what the surface asks of us for an intensity produced by the object of desire. But because the object of desire is characterized by lack, we take it that the lack of enjoyment is the result of the object of desire vanishing into its forms. This means we are left with the object itself and desire desiring itself. Desire then must, must create a socius where desire is then rejected. And the gregarious adult gets this job. He rejects or denies desire. We retain the essence of lack, not the object. Materialistic objects like houses, luxury, jewelry, and even women cannot carry or be consumed at this level of the miraculating machine because miraculating machines do not consume. This is what the celibate machine does. It consumes or consummates, all the while producing a surface by the same consumption. This intensity produces or works alongside desiring production and this is what I will call desiring revenge. Desiring revenge is the individual willing or the act of committing vengeance. But the entity that emanates on this surface is called desirous revenge with the suffix O-U-S, implying possession. This is why we cannot say an insult occurs when enjoyment is cut off or blocked. In other words, we cannot attain the human vital potentia unless by taking it away from someone else. The fact that capitalism behaves by comparing prices against the market and shares these behaviors with subjects as well means that we measure ourselves against the material possessions of others. The desirous revenge happens at a celibate emanating at the celibate surface emanating forces that takes up upon the pl the place of the axioms. The movement of space and compounding interest of the miraculating machine. In other words, the way one gets money is through growth, which is the additive property or the containment inside capitalism that miraculates. The return on investment is a multiplicative property. Capitalism frees up codes so that the space we interact with, in this case flows of growth, becomes more comparable. This forces social salesmen to be more creative with their offers.